HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. And today we are rejoining the theme of sales freight. Many of you were a part of the great and successful extraordinary adventure of the Vermont Sale Freight Project, bringing $50,000 worth of regional farms produced shelf-stable goods from Vermont to Manhattan along a 330-mile water corridor powered by and motor. We had some motor assistance on that on that journey, um, but we moved um, 14 and a half tons of of cargo in that way, and have, as a result, become totally passionate about alternative distribution systems. Um, well, we started totally passionate, and we're delighted to discover Greg Schindler, who's now on our show. Hi, Greg. Hey, Severin. How are you? I'm good. I'm talking a blue streak. And Greg is also investigating in the same way um, with his full scope of his imagination flaring um, <laughs> sustainable distribution via water in on the other side of the country in um, the Puget Sound. Hi, Greg. Tell us who you are. Well, um, Severin, I remember meeting you back, I think, in 2011 when you were premiering your documentary uh, back at the Wallensburg Grange when I was living in Lake Placid. And I think like a lot of people in our generation, uh, been thinking about, well, where's the place to get started? Where's the, where do I have my best chances? Where's the best community? And where's the best ecosystem? And after living in Maine and Virginia for a while, uh, looking at soil maps and, you know, understanding wanting to live in a balance between a city and an agricultural area, a, a very rural area, I came to discover Olympia, Washington, uh, also by way of working for Paul Stamets, who's um, a well-known mycologist 
and um, yes, I actually started researching uh, fuel-free transportation back in uh, Lake Placid, New York, and it's always kind of been intriguing to me for a lot of reasons, um, and those reasons have only grown since I moved to Washington. So would, how would you characterize the challenge um, the challenge of water distribution in the Puget Sound? And, um, and then maybe you can use that as a scaffold to lay out some, some of the ways that you approach this problem, very multimodal, very kind of cross-sectoral um, set of decisions and projects, I mean, uh, processes that, are, that you have to invoke in order to kind of address distribution comprehensively, so maybe you can use that as an example, as a way to talk about those. Sure, Severin. Um, well, it's hard to find a place in, the, in North America that has a more indented coastline filled with long, thin peninsulas and islands and uh, that isn't quite as rocky as the main coast, for example. And so you have a situation where you have extremely circumstantial circuitous routes, excuse me, you have extremely indirect routes uh, for people driving by car, and you also have a historical precedent before there was really the large-scale build-out of roads in the Puget Sound. You had what was called the Mosquito Fleet, and you, there were ferries that would come and drop people and supplies at all different um, regions of the Puget Sound. And of course, even before that, looking at the First Nations people and how they lived with the land and at one with the land. And those, of course, were dugout cedar canoes this way. And I think your way, there were more birch bark canoes. But, um, and I was lucky enough to actually participate on the canoe journey, which is an incredible example of human-powered transportation. Every summer, about a uh, hundred tribes get together from this from this region, Canada included, and they all paddle to one um, reservation, and they have a celebration there for about a week. And along the way, you stop at every reservation and uh, ask to come ashore in the traditional way, to come in a good way and share food and dance and rest. And it was really incredible for me to uh, engage that opportunity. And... I think generally speaking, one of the things about the farm movement is it's very difficult to get started if you don't own land or this notion, how do I get involved if I don't live near a farm or if I don't own land or I can't be committed to uh, land, I, I have other things to do. And this situation, uh, the human energy, there's so much talk about energy in the press. What kind of alternative energies are we going to look for? And there's so much energy within ourselves, and that is energy to change, to make different choices, and fundamentally also how to collaborate on a neighborhood level again. And uh, what was really interesting is I found that a professor at the University of Washington, Ann Goodchild, has actually used GIS to model distribution systems and has found out that what's called proximity assignment is the best way to distribute food more or less how your trash is picked up and delivered. And if, if you compare that to everyone driving to the grocery store themselves, you can reduce carbon emissions by 80 to 90%. So, um, 
So it's, it's hard to believe, but in the whole food system, the most carbon-intensive part is actually getting in your car and driving to the grocery store and driving home. So um, it's it's been a really interesting research process, and I think for me I wanted to find something that anybody could do anywhere tomorrow. You know, you're probably like me, Severin. You've probably seen a lot of uh, documentaries over the years that give a sense of urgency to the soul that something must be done. And we don't need to wait for technology. We don't need to um, wait to own land. We can start um, tomorrow with existing technology. And that's what I like to call bicycles and canoes are perfect technologies with imperfect implementation. Since the bike and canoe were invented, there's no more efficient way to move by human power, by water, or by land. Yes, there may be be some uh, innovations in materials, but essentially converting human energy to movement, that's optimized, so... Well, plus it's fun, and you look better when you do it. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, I think the looking part is is an interesting thing you mentioned because part of what I think is a great effect of this is when, when customers or potential customers, citizens, see other people on bikes with trailers or in canoes with trailers, it's a reminder that food comes from people and it comes from the landscape. And we have a choice every day when we buy our food how uh, to nourish um, the land and nourish people in a thoughtful way. And I just think, you know, we have fair trade, we have organic, we have local, and the distribution system is a huge element that I see the local food movement being able to make huge strides on. And... um the other element, of course, to this is there's a lot of fallow human energy in the sense there's a lot of people, young people our age, with college degrees who are very educated, who understand very much the changes that need to be made, um, but are unable to get into the job market. And um, when I saw Occupy and I saw all these people looking for a change, I, I was thinking to myself, what could we have these, what could we do? together um, to make a change tomorrow. And um, so there's some great projects around the country, and I just want to, you know, say I'm in a research stage and I am still um, testing the feasibility, testing the weights of the canoes and building out my map slowly with citizen collaborators and different food distribution points. Um, but pedal people out of Massachusetts is amazing. They've been around for 10 years, and they have 500 customers. Um, there's also the Dragonfly Sail Company, which is up on the Great Lakes. And there's even the Salish Sea Trading Cooperative, which sails from the Olympic Peninsula to Seattle, I think, in a, in a 24-hour sailing trip. Um, and so those are fantastic projects. But even if we don't have a sailboat, if we have bicycles, um, if we have canoes, we can make a difference. Well, I think we can make a big difference, and I, you know, and one of the questions that keeps the, that keeps being um, 
that he's being brought up and usefully brought up as we are, you know, talking about the sailboat and, and distribution. Now we're talking about sail freight in Maine and having conversations about what would the lo- like what would be the logical thing to do. What would it be the logical thing for the landscape and and starting to tune into more resilient, more low input, low output systems and kind of acculturating ourselves differently to the expectation of how those logistics play out, um, managing well, for less complex and um, energy-dependent systems towards more resilient, less energy-intensive systems. And, it, you know, people freak out a little bit and whenever you have these conversations about sailboats because they're like, ah, it's so uneconomic or it's so inefficient or, it's, you know, what are you doing? You're like a pirate. But, um, man, it provokes such a great set of conversations. Exactly. I think that's where there's a huge value. And really, the idea is it's a consciousness delivery system, and it's interweaving uh, people together again in, in ways that were experienced maybe two generations back, where there were milkmen and uh, there were um, community gardens. You know, I, I love, for example, looking at World War II propaganda when everybody was on the same page and the Women's Land Army and uh, Victory Gardens, and that was real. That was real, and it was there was concerted and a dedicated effort. And I think that's what's really at the end of this is the, the ability to build community to empower people using human energy. So the idea is we do have the power to make a change, and it really um, it's about providing value and understanding what people need. And it's so interesting, there's so many variations on um, bike transport or fuel-free transport. And I think one of the things is really recognize the discussion is great because you get into things, for example, why do people eat out for lunch or why do people eat out at restaurants? They might not have time to process local foods and um, store them and prepare them and so on. And so what can we do with all of the unemployed people in this country to really um, create the demand that is needed to, to not only stimulate a healthy relationship with the land and preserve open spaces, but also to, to uh, heal people through food? And I think that's one of the greatest lessons from the Pacific Northwest uh, tribal people is they say our food is our medicine. And um, so when you think about, I was, basically, I, I think that carbon, low-carbon transportation, especially by bicycle or human-powered, is a holistic grail. It touches on environmental aspects. It touches on political aspects, economic aspects, and social aspects, and, and really medical and health aspects. And it's a process of healing. And the way I see the network, one of the things I learned working for Paul Stamets is mycelium and the microorganisms in the soil form a network. They hold on to good nutrients. They distribute nutrients in water. And we have the ability to build an organic, uh, human-intertwined network of change. And I think that's also when when people think about how their food's transported, they're going to also think about how it was made and what it is. And that that also provides a framework for delivering how to cook healthy foods and or even delivering prepared foods. And so it's really an opportunity to care for the people, for anyone in your community and cultivate, help them cultivate 
the changes that are so glaringly necessary. Um, whichever way, whichever um, rabbit hole you go down, whether it's environmental indicators or political indicators, financial indicators, it's uh, it's looking at the the points where fiscal sustainability and environmental sustainability can cross over. And and I think some people, you're right, Severin, kind of dismiss this as a you know. Oh, that can't really be that impactful. But one of the things I'd like to compare this movement to maybe is the Civilian Conservation Corps of uh, FDR's time. And with that, he was able to provide a purpose for a lot of young men and training and uh, life and community. And they planted trees and they created a lot of parks that we still use today. And it was a nodal kind of... um, program that could happen anywhere in the country. And that, if you really think about it, that same demograph was stirring up revolution and fascism in in, uh, in Europe at that same time. And what I think it did, too, was build a tremendous amount of social capital with the New Deal. And when we think about the environmental movement and the changes we need to make, I think if if the young generation can can make the first step and extend the hand and the offer to serve in the way that we're talking about, that in a way raises the consciousness and the responsibility of the consumers and decision makers, and it demonstrates a will and a real physical manifestation that this is not a protest, this is an alternative. And I think Buckminster Fuller said it the best, that you don't um, change an existing paradigm um, by tearing it down, but you re- you replace one that makes the old one obsolete. <laughs> I think I butchered that quote, <laughs> but I think you get the point. Well, in thinking in terms of the shape of a system that's appropriate to adopt is is pretty powerful and and a good tool for thinking through if you're a young person deciding where to assign your life energy. Um, it's a good intellectual exercise to use while you're still programmed by college. Um, which is, you know, abstract thinking and expository writing and complex mathematics, all of which becomes, you know, increasingly irrelevant as you enter the real world. But you can do some good analysis of where you're going to put yourself in the real world in the meantime and figuring out which parts parts of the system. Huh? I was just going to say, I think that's a great point, Severin, because the you know, media and the ability to analyze and all these things that were not necessarily democratic or egalitarian are becoming more and more so all the time with digital technology. The ability to share Google Docs and the, the ability to... Uh, um, currently, my my project is featured on SlideShare. And what a way to be able to distribute an idea and get uh, solicit support and analyze things and receive input. And it's it's amazing that just because we may choose to be farmers or be, choose to live a low-impact lifestyle doesn't mean we need to somehow um, intellectually atrophy. And I think that's getting to the point where we not only have the the um, responsibility of transcending our circumstances intellectually, but also in our work ethic. And I think that's one of the things one of the beautiful things about the small farm movement that I've experienced in my life is the value of working hard and the kind of community and relationships you build through real work. 
and I think that's something that uh, so many are desiring and craving these days. And um, the ability to get together and to act with Facebook or social media, it almost puts an inevitability to what's going to happen. And that means we are going to have to collaborate positively together and think about how we can get everybody on board. And it's just amazing with GIS what you can do to figure out whether it's bikes or sailboats or a veggie oil car or a veggie oil boat. There's so many options. And with wireless technology, the ability to place orders and make orders, even customize orders, is unparalleled. And as far as economics go, I don't think there's a, a, a period in time where you could match supply and demand more exactly than today. And when you think about the prices of food, what goes to waste has to be covered by what's sold. And at the farmer's market, all these farmers have to maintain a delivery truck and the expenses associated with that and the maintenance. And they need to pay someone to be at the farmer's market to make sure the food is distributed. I'm not, I'm not here to, to replace farmer's markets, but what I'm saying is as far as the economic argument goes, we're getting to the point where we'll be able to analyze exactly what goes into the price of food. You know, is it property taxes? Is it subsidies? Is it uh, labor? And we'll be able to ask very specific questions and also be able to track very specifically exactly how our decisions affect the landscape around us and the people around us. Well, the only thing I would add is that we, um, in order to have the tools to use to be um, effective disruptors of a global economic system that's delivering a bad service ecologically and in terms of human health, um, although, you know, in, on, on its own terms is very effective, is to maintain the aptitude and the skill set and the data set and the competencies to engage with more grassroots and open source technological platforms. You're mentioning some names of some big uh, social media platforms. I would argue that our, our resilience and our capacity to use over time those technological tools which will enable us to create more regional systems rely on our having access proficiency with community around practice using and um, practice designing on a smaller scale. And so kind of cobbling things together is really good training in that sense, too. I don't know. Uh, Absolutely. I'm I'm really enjoying exploring more of these open source programs and building relationships around um, ethical technological tools to support this work going forward. Absolutely. And just an invitation to you, Severin, and whoever is listening, but I will continue uh, my research this year. I'm very excited. Um, I have my trailer. I replaced all the aluminum parts with stainless steel parts and went to a local um, metal shop to get that work done, went to the local bike shop to see what the maximum number of spokes I could get on my wheels was. And what, what it's, it's been is an amazing adventure to meet community members. That's how I got invited on the canoe journey. Um, that, that's how I'm getting to know bike mechanics and getting to know about welding and all of, all of these lost arts and 
nourishing this connection. And I really look forward uh, to the spring and summer. I have a, a couple friends with sailboats, and I uh, have a few more friends with canoes, and we're we're going to fill mason jars. And it can be with water. It can be with sand. Uh, one of my big experiments last year was going to the food bank and going to the downtown well in uh, Olympia and using that as a, a test weight. How much can we fit in the canoe? How far can we paddle it? And so there's so many ways that even if you don't have the money to get a business started, that you can prove a concept and you can prove that something works and you can get that legwork that you need to solicit a grant or, or to prove to people that it's possible and that it can be done. And um, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, also making a Kickstarter video. And the Vermont Sail Project is just an incredible example of what can be done. I was so inspired by what you all did there, Sever. Well, I just hope we can keep these conversations flowing and learn learn from each other's experience. And, you know, I was very impressed with your historical research and some of the case models that you found in your research. So I'm thankful for what you're doing. And for those of you who are interested to continue this um, journey into sale freight and alternative distribution, please do keep your eyeballs on the blog, Greenhorns. Dot word, the greenhorns.wordpress.com. We have a, a continuous theme of um, exploring these topics. So we'll we'll see you, Greg, on the West Coast, and I'll see some of you hopefully in person soon for conference season. This has been a great pleasure. Thank you, Greg. Looking forward to it, Severin. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of the Greenhorns radio program. Travel safely. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.